the hijab for me is um, a headscarf and a commitment to being the best version of myself. Um, it's really a reminder to sort of say that, you know, people should look at me for my intelligence or my character or the lack of those two things and that I really should focus on being the best person that I can be in all my dealings. I started wearing the hijab when I was a 10-year-old girl in the fifth grade. I wore the hijab because I believe it is an important and mandatory part of my religion and I did it all on my own. I don't wear the hijab and never have and thinking back about the reasons why I, I don't probably stems from my cultural background and the way the women in my family raised me. One of my students basically uh, you know, pounded his fist on the table and sort of said, I can't take it anymore. I don't see your hair and I must see it. So um, to him, the response I gave was just picture me bald. This is What Teachers Need to Know, the Middle East edition, the podcast that explains current events as well as history, culture, and social issues of the modern Middle East and North Africa. I'm Josh of Primary Source, a nonprofit that provides professional development for K-12 teachers in global learning. This podcast is just one of the many ways we help educators bring the wider world to their classrooms so that all students get the knowledge and skills they need to become engaged global citizens. To learn more about Primary Source in this podcast, visit www.primarysource.org slash podcasts. The creation of this podcast was made possible through generous support from Qatar Foundation International, a nonprofit organization that inspires meaningful connections to the Arab world by creating a global community of diverse learners and educators. Learn more about QFI at www.qfi.org. Veils, hijabs, burqas, niqabs, abayas. The veil, broadly speaking, is one of the most iconic symbols of the Middle East. For many Westerners, it represents the exoticism, mysteriousness, and yes, even oppressiveness of the region and of Islam. But what's really going on underneath all those coverings? Why do coverings come in different shapes and styles and colors? Why do some women in the Middle East cover only their hair and others cover their entire bodies? And why do some Middle Eastern women not wear any sort of veil at all? As we'll see, learning more about veiling can tell us not only a lot about the societies, cultures, and politics of the Middle East and North Africa, but also a little bit about ourselves and how we look upon others who do things differently than we do. This is episode two, Underneath the Veil. If there's one thing you need to know about veiling in the Middle East, it's this. For most Muslim women, veiling is a choice that they make to demonstrate their piety, not something that is forced on them by an oppressive culture. That's Barbara Petson, Director of Middle East Connections, a nonprofit initiative that provides PD and curriculum development services to K-12 educators. 
After studying the Middle East at big-name schools like Columbia and Oxford and Harvard, she made it her mission to help others, especially teachers, learn more about the region. But before we continue, let's back up just for a second to make sure we're all on the same page. What exactly do we mean by the term veiling as it relates to women in the Middle East? So we use this term veil, and it's a little unclear what we actually mean. Are we talking about a head covering that just covers a woman's hair? Are we talking about a covering that covers a woman's hair and part of her face or everything but her eyes? Or are we talking about all modesty garb? So covering the hair and or face and a long loose garment that covers a whole woman's body. And all of those terms can be bound up in this single term veil. And within Middle Eastern societies, at least, you often hear the term covering as opposed to veiling. So a woman is covered or she doesn't cover. And that can obviously extend to covering her hair or covering her face. As you might have guessed by now, Barbara talks frequently about veiling to audiences of teachers. And in all her talks, she emphasizes that there's no one size fits all way to think about the topic. Rather, there are a lot of variables at play. It's important to recognize that all Muslim women do not cover. You have, in some societies, a majority of women covering. In other societies, a minority of women covering. In almost every society, it is up to a woman to decide whether she covers her hair or not. Only in two societies, in Saudi Arabia and Iran, there's a legal requirement that women cover their hair. And in those two societies, uh, women cover differently in order to express how they feel about the mandatory nature of covering. So I think that it's really important to recognize that there's a lot of religious and cultural diversity around veiling. And in different societies, women veil or cover in very different ways. If you look at a woman in Pakistan, she's liable to cover her hair with a much looser, more diaphanous kind of fabric. If you look at a woman in Iran, a conservative woman is likely to use black fabric that's more tightly bound to her hair around her face. If you look in the UAE, you might find women who are the height of fashion with very colorful and um, fashionable, you know, a la, you know, modish styles of head covering. So it really depends on where you are. If you're in an urban environment or a rural environment, if you're looking at women who are quite wealthy or women who are quite poor. All of those uh, variables are gonna define what head covering or veiling looks like for any particular woman. And then of course there's individual choice. Muslim women choose to veil or not to veil, and they choose how to cover, how much they're going to cover, how tightly they're going to cover, what fabrics, what colors they're going to use, and that can be a very, very individual choice. We'll explore some of those variables together in a moment. But first, it's helpful to understand the relationship between veiling and Islam just a little bit more. There isn't actually total agreement in Muslim communities about what the Islamic tradition requires women or asks women to wear. Uh, most would agree that it is voluntary, that women decide to cover. The Quran says that women should not display of their beauty or of their adornments that which doesn't ordinarily appear. And the Orthodox Islamic tradition, which was developed by men in the first few centuries after the advent of Islam, interprets that to mean women should cover everything but their hands and their faces. 
But there are many contemporary Muslim feminists who say that that is a very extreme interpretation of the verse and that there is much more flexibility in how a woman demonstrates her piety and whether she demonstrates it by covering. It's also really important to remember that traditions of veiling in the Middle East aren't static. In fact, one could make an argument that covering isn't even really that quote-unquote traditional, at least in parts of the region. Veiling is something that has changed historically. In the 20th century, you see a trend in many Muslim countries of women stopping wearing the veil. In Egypt, for example, when I was first there in the 1980s, maybe one in 10 women that you would see on the street in Cairo covered her hair. And it was typically someone who had newly arrived from the, the villages. Now, I'd be surprised if one in 20 women had her hair uncovered in Cairo. So it's not something that has historically been a, a kind of traditional thing, but something that changes with the political and economic and social characteristics of the day. Okay, so veiling changes over time and has been interpreted differently over the centuries. The custom also varies from place to place, from culture to culture, and from woman to woman. So where does that leave us? How can we make any meaningful sense of veiling if the reasons seem so variable, even scattered? While it's true that individual women cover or choose not to cover for a host and usually a mix of different reasons, we can still shine a little light on some of the more common reasons that can lead women to decide when, how, and if to cover. Let's start by exploring some of the social dimensions to veiling that Barbara alluded to earlier. The social meanings of veiling are fascinating because they're really very diverse. You really can't look at a woman and know why she's veiling or what her veil means without really having a, a kind of in-depth conversation. On the one hand, it can be a marker of identity as a pious Muslim woman, simply a public declaration that this is who I am and this is what I believe, especially in a context where the veil is not required. It also is a marker in the life of a woman that she's uh, become a grown-up. So children don't veil, women do. It's a, it's a rite of passage to put on a veil in many cultures. And when a girl decides to do that, it's saying that I'm ready to take on the responsibilities of an adult woman in society. And what about the political reasons for veiling? Here's where things get a little bit more complicated. Wearing the veil can be a political act. Not wearing the veil can be a political act. It can be an act of resistance to a state that either mandates that all women cover their hair or that mandates that women not cover their hair to do the opposite. And women have used that ability to use their dress as a marker of their political resistance to an oppressive regime in both ways. In Iran, for example, you have the veil being used as a means of resistance to the Pahlavi regime. So in the 1970s, the Iranian regime wanted women to be a societal marker of its modernity and its turn towards the West. It very much wanted urban women to stop wearing the veil, to wear Western clothes, and to demonstrate just how civilized Iran was becoming. So part of women's resistance to the Pahlavi regime 
theme um, leading up to the 1979 revolution is that they would wear the chador, wear a head covering in order to demonstrate their opposition to the regime, telling them that they had to uncover. And they were basically saying, you can't tell me what to do with my body. Today, the regime demands that women cover their hair. And so you see resistance on the other side with women wearing a head covering, but wearing it very loose, often with hair that's dyed or very beautifully coiffed, wearing a lot of makeup, wearing tight clothing under the veil. And so demonstrating by the fact that they adhere to the law as little as possible, their resistance to the state telling them that they should cover. So in a way, you can see the political meaning of the veil, whether you wear it or not wear it, as a symbol of resistance to a regime that's trying to control what women should wear in public. So covering or not covering has a very political meaning that can be attached to it, particularly in circumstances where the state or a political party or a particular cultural group tries to force women to either veil or to not veil in order to demonstrate just how Western or just how culturally authentic or religious a particular regime is. And finally, what about the economic reasons that can inform a woman's decision to cover? These are much less obvious than the social or political reasons, but they're no less insightful. People don't often think about the veil as being an economic signifier, but I think that's one of its most interesting attributes in a way. On the one hand, you can think of the veil as a kind of economic camouflage. That is that a woman who works in a professional environment, if she wears Western dress, has to have you know, a week or two weeks worth of different outfits that you can wear and change every day. That's part of the code of Western dress. If, however, you wear Islamic dress, wearing the same external coat and headscarf every day is not a marker of uh, poverty. It's a marker of a kind of pious religiosity. So if you are in straightened economic circumstances, you can still present a very professional appearance in the workplace, but only have to have one nice set of clothes or a couple nice sets of clothes instead of having to invest heavily in a Western wardrobe. So it can allow women who are on the poorer end of society to uh, mingle uh, across a much broader swath of society without obviously being poor. At the other end, it can also be a signifier of cosmopolitan taste and wealth, particularly over the last 20 years, I would say. Islamic fashion has become a real burgeoning part of the global fashion industry, and you see a remarkable explosion of different forms and styles and patterns of Islamic clothing, and they're really very, very beautiful. So you can make a statement about your fashion, your taste, and how much money you're willing to spend on this fashion through the veil as well. To drive her point home, Barbara challenges us to look through the veil from the inside out and to consider what Middle Eastern women who cover might think about women in the West who don't cover. A lot of women in the West look at the veil as the symbol of the oppression of Muslim women. At the same time, a lot of Muslim women look at the West and they see that Western women are 
forced by a kind of corporate culture to expose their bodies and to be judged by what their bodies look like rather than the content of their personality. So women are encouraged to wear bikinis and short shorts and to participate in beauty pageants. And, you know, all women feel compelled to constantly display their physicality in a way that men will find pleasing. And Muslim women would look at that and say, that's real oppression to constantly be judged only on how you look. And it is true that how a woman looks will affect her earning power, her ability to get hired, her choice of marriage partners in a very significant way. So women in the West will see Muslim women as oppressed because they wear the veil. Women in the Muslim world will look at Western women and see them as oppressed because they are made to be naked and to be exposed to the male gaze in order to have self-esteem and be socially valued. A veil in the Middle East can reveal a woman's religious beliefs, her cultural upbringing, her social standing, her politics, even her wealth or financial insecurities. And because of this, asking a woman why she covers or doesn't cover is a pretty personal question one that's usually off the table for discussion and polite conversation, at least in our culture. Fortunately, we're friends with three Muslim American women who are willing to share with us their thoughts on covering. Each grew up or has close family connections in the Middle East or North Africa, and each came of age in a different era. You can hear some of the social, cultural, and political reasons behind veiling in their responses. My name is Jihan, and I don't wear the hijab and never have. And thinking back about the reasons why I, I don't probably stems from my cultural background and the way the women in my family raised me. I would consider them to be liberal, and this goes all the way back to my great-grandmother who I actually had met when I was younger. And my mom never thought about wearing it and doesn't wear it. My maternal grandmother either. And my paternal grandmother used to wear something called the Hayek, which is the Algerian version of a modest covering, which entailed a scarf around the head and a small veil around the face. And this was never really associated with religion. It was more of a, uh, as I mentioned, sort of a modest covering that women in our culture wore, and they had an entire white outfit that went along with it. I didn't really start experiencing or seeing women wear the hijab until probably the 1990s, when there were a lot of religious changes that were happening around the country, and there's a lot of turmoil around religion, which actually caused a lot of people to leave the country, including us in the 90s. My name is Layla, and I started wearing the hijab when I was a 10-year-old girl in the fifth grade. I wore the hijab because I believe it is an important and mandatory part of my religion, and I did it all on my own. For me, hijab is more than a piece of fabric covering my hair. I believe that it has liberated me from what society expects of women. Since hijab covers my hair and body and encourages modesty, it has allowed people to judge me on my character and intellect rather than my appearance. I'm a Pakistani-American Muslim. I've lived in five different countries growing up. I came to the United States when I was 10, and eventually I decided that I felt like I needed to cover my hair in my 20s because I wanted to be uh, fully committed to my devotion and love to God. 
These last thoughts come from Sabine Rizaki, a world history and political science teacher in Newton, Massachusetts. She also shared with us her experience as being a teacher who wears a hijab in a predominantly non-Muslim high school. Students enter my classroom very tentatively. I think that they really fear offending me in some ways, and usually it takes three or four days for students to realize that I have a sense of humor and that I'm open to any questions that they might have. I talk about uh, the hijab on the second day, which is our real first day of full classes. So I mention that I uh, look differently, and I usually tell them that this is a way in which that I uh, remind myself to be uh, a thoughtful, compassionate, moral, ethical person. I also uh, tell them a little bit about myself and mention that uh, you know the hijab is a, a way of sort of saying that I want people to see me for my intelligence and my character or the lack thereof, and I leave it at that. I mention it as much as it needs to be mentioned to answer questions, and in some classes I mention it a lot, in others I don't. Sabine knows her students are curious about her hijabs, and being the great teacher she is, she uses humor and kindness to answer their questions. I let students know that any earnest question, um, I'm always game for answering it, as long as it's a sincere question, and I've got some very, very weird ones over the years. They have asked me whether uh, it gets hot underneath there, what my hair looks like, can't they get a glimpse? I've gotten all kinds of questions about styles. I have some years where students will actually rate my hijabs. So on, uh, you know, on a given day, I'll walk in and they'll be like, Miss Rizaki, too poofy, I don't like this one. And other days we're like, thumbs up, I like the look of that one. So it's been really, really funny uh, to sort of uh, see their reactions. And about those times when students have said things that were, shall we say, less than 100% supportive? Absolutely. I think it's usually from students outside of my classroom uh, where I've gotten those comments. One time, uh, several years ago, I had a student who was not in my classroom come up to me and stop me in the parking lot and say, how dare you wear that thing on your head and be slave to your husband? And so I um, paused and I said, hi, I'm Miss Rizaki. I'm teaching the history department. I'm not slave to my husband. It might be the other way around, but if you really want to talk about it, come see me at my office. And he didn't actually take me up on that. Ultimately, she says it's her goal to just be the best possible teacher she can be. I had this one really interesting year where I noticed that none of my students were asking me any questions about being Muslim or the Muslim world. I have an undergrad degree in the Middle East, uh, so I thought maybe this would be of interest, and everyone else outside the classroom was asking me questions. So I went back to my sophomore class and I said, is something up? Are you guys not comfortable asking me questions about Muslims and Islam, or are you just not thinking about it? And unanimously, the whole class sort of said, well, we think of you as our history teacher, so we didn't really connect that you were Muslim and that we needed to ask you a specific cultural question. And I thought that was a really big win, because if they could see me walking in with a headscarf every day and still see me as a history teacher and a whole person, that was pretty impressive. From our perspective, we wish there were a lot more teachers out there like Sabine. Bottom line, veiling for most Middle Eastern women is a choice. Some women cover and others don't, and they cover or don't cover for a lot of different reasons. And while many women in parts of the Middle East and North Africa do face some pretty serious challenges, 
we have to be careful that we don't make our own misperception of veiling one of them. By talking about veiling with your students and by emphasizing the agency that most Middle Eastern women have in deciding when, how, and if to cover, we can break down unhelpful stereotypes and pave the way for deeper learning about the region and its diverse peoples. Thanks for joining us. And in case you're looking for the next big thing in fashion, you heard it here first. I really believe that in five to 10 years, Western women will adopt some of these fashionable head coverings because, you know, on a bad hair day, I would love to be able to wear some of these gorgeous um, head coverings as a marker of fashion rather than something that is only seen in a religious sense. To learn more about today's episode, our sponsors, and to discover free online resources that can help you teach about veiling and covering in the Middle East, visit www.primarysource.org slash podcasts.